Imagine yourselves sitting in a cave. It's quite a big cave. And you're facing the back wall. And behind you is a fire and a procession of figures walking by, engaged in all the activities of life. Of course, the figures are casting a shadow on the back wall of the cave. And that's all you see, that's all you know. And so you take those shadows to be the reality. Maybe one day it dawns on you to turn around and you see the fire and you see the procession of figures and you notice those shadows were not the reality at all, but simply a reflection of reality. So you have a whole different relationship then to the shadows on the wall. And maybe you get up quite a bit of energy and actually stand up and walk out of the cave into the sunlight, into freedom. This, of course, is the famous parable of the cave from the Republic of Plato. And it describes very well the situation of our lives. Because for the most part, we are living in a world of concepts. And we're taking those concepts to be real. We're living in the world of shadows, taking the shadows to be the reality and finding ourselves quite confined in that understanding. What are some of the concepts that we find ourselves identified with and lost with, imprisoned by, really? There are many, but I'll mention just a few this evening. First of them is an attachment to place an identification with place. And unfortunately, this attachment can have devastating consequences. It's most noticeable and very obvious now in the news when you think of what's happening in what was formerly Yugoslavia. When people were identified with the concept Yugoslavia as a nation state, they were living relatively harmoniously with one another. The concept changed. Nothing else changed. The concept of place, the concept of country changed. People became identified with another idea. And all the bloodshed, all the atrocities, because we don't understand how identified we become with our own mental constructs. Now it's said that a common, almost quasi-mystical experience that most of the astronauts had in circling the globe, and it's fairly obvious when we think of it, is that sense or feeling of the oneness of it all. You know, because we could just see the planet Earth hanging out there in space, and we see, it, was, it must have been so obvious that these boundaries and divisions are constructs of the mind. So it's one kind of concept that when we are attached to, when we don't see it clearly, can have can have consequences of life and death for people. There's another concept which we create and which so conditions our life. And that is the concept or mental construct of time, of past and future. When we look carefully at what our experience of past and future is, it's amazingly liberating. What is the past? What is it that we actually call past? We sit here and we have certain kinds of thoughts 
the memories, the remembrances, the recollections, and we put a name on all of these kinds of thoughts. We create a name, we create a concept, we call it past, toss it back in back of us someplace as if the past is a reality back there from which we've come. And we do the same thing with future. What is the future? How do we experience the future? Ever. How do you ever experience the future? Except as a thought in the present moment. There's planning, there's imagining, there's fantasizing. We put a name on that. We call it future. Toss it out ahead of us as if the future is a reality waiting for us. When you consider your life and how you live your life, think of how much is invested in this idea of past and future and how much it conditions how we live. How much of the time we're lost in concerns, in worries, in daydreams, in anticipation, in anxiety, in fear, in hope. And it's all around a mental concept constructed out of a thought in the moment. There's an image which has come to mind recently which can help us understand the essential nature of these thoughts and help free us. Just think of Halloween. You know, you're at home and these little kids come up ringing your doorbell, trick-or-treating, and they're all in various costumes. There's the witch and there's the pirate and there's the ghost. When you open the door to the witch, do you get frightened? Probably not. (laughs) Probably you see the witch and you smile and you give the witch some candy. (laughs) The kid may be really into being a witch, you know, or really into being a pirate. But really, all the time, it's a kid in a costume. These thoughts are like kids in costumes. It's like the kid comes to the door in the costume of future, comes to the door in the costume of past. And what happens is we believe it. We forget that it is only a thought in the moment. Past and future are weighty. You know, there's this huge burden which we carry on our shoulders and we're living our life under this burden. How much of our time is spent anticipating or worrying or whatever it is we do about what we think is going to happen? Forgetting all the time that they are simply thoughts. The thought themselves are light. They're nothing. They're kids dressed up. If we can see them that way, if we can recognize them for what they are and see that past and future are a concept that we have created and are investing with a power and a reality, our life becomes so much simpler. It's not that we don't deal with the issues that need to be dealt with. but we deal with them appropriately rather than adding to it this huge weight and burden. The Buddha talked of dangers to concentration or obstacles to concentration. And he said that past and future are two of the biggest dangers or obstacles to concentrating the mind. You've been here now some number of days, and I'm sure you have seen this. You've had this insight. (laughs) Most likely, more of the time has been spent in past and future than in the present moment. You know, when we really look honestly at what our minds are doing, we get lost. We forget. We take the witch seriously. Oh, yeah. 
St. Augustine said something quite appropriate. It's not that I'm such a great student of St. Augustine, but it was one of these quotations in front of a spy book that I was reading. (laughs) Sometimes the best material comes from these books. (laughs) He said... If the past and future really exist, where are they? That's it, exactly. Okay, so we need to see this. And again, I would encourage you to look in this way because our belief in this concept not only conditions a huge amount of other thoughts, it's because we believe in this so, so much that it generates so many other thoughts. It also tremen- generates a tremendous amount of emotional energy. You can see it in a small way, just in your considerations of time about being on retreat. You know, probably at times the thought has arisen, four more days, three more days. <laughs> I'll never make it. You know, sometimes people count the minutes (laughs) left. And at other times, it's going well, and you feel really happy to be, and you think, only three more days, I wish it were three months. Both of those are simply thoughts. If we don't see them for what they are, they condition our mood, our feeling, we feel happy, we feel depressed. To see these thoughts of past and future for exactly what they are is tremendously liberating. And so it's worth paying attention to that. There's the concept of place, the concepts of time, of past and future. There's the concepts we get involved in of ownership and possessiveness. You know, we think that we own things. What does it mean to own something? I mean, when you think of what the concept, as a concept, what does it mean? I have it forever and ever. (laughs) And it is completely in my control. (laughs) That's what it sounds like. But of course, in that respect, we don't own any, we're in a relationship to various things, you know, certain parameters of that relationship. And nothing less than we eventually lose everything one way or another. When we think we own possessions, we get possessive about people. My wife, my husband, my children. We are possessive about this own mind and body. My mind, my body. Talk a little later about the illusory nature of that. It can come to absurd proportions, even in the context of deep spiritual practice. We were in the monastery in Burma. Burma is very hot, very hot. And so practice is difficult. You know, the climate is not conducive. And while we were there, the fan wars took place. (laughs) Because some people like to come in the hall and have the fans on. And other people came into the hall and liked the fans off. And at one point, two people came to blows. And this said a monastery. <laughs> Practicing love and compassion and awareness. Where did that... It came from this strong concept of possessiveness. <laughs> this is my meditation hall and I'm going to have it the way I want it. And if you think it's so far out of your own potential... <laughs> Imagine how you would feel if you came into the hall and you felt some, you saw somebody sitting on your cushion. (laughs) There would be a moment or two. (laughs) So we have to see how we do this, how we just get attached to these notions. And it's not that these concepts are not useful. I'm not suggesting that we should not use concepts. It would be impossible. We need them. This is the way we communicate with one another and live in the world. 
It's when we get so attached to them and forget that they are the constructs of our own mind. That's when we're no longer using them, but being used by them. Another very powerful concept that limits us tremendously are all the concepts we generate of self-image. Now, most of us, probably all of us, have some kind of images of ourselves, both worldly self-images, spiritual self-images, how we present ourselves to the world and to ourself. Image of ourselves as a wonderful being, or a terrible being, or brilliant, or stupid, or whatever it is, whatever our own particular mental construct is. Good yogi, bad yogi. This self-image of all the many stripes that arise in the mind are the basis for so many judgments in the mind and comparisons. I'm sure by now you've noticed the comparing mind, the judging mind. The first retreat I sat with Upandita, who was here in 1984, was very intensive and we were all working very hard and was somewhat stressful. And about, it was a two-month course, three-month course, and about halfway into it, I saw people starting to write in little notebooks. And they were all the people who I thought were the really good yogis. And I thought, oh, Upandita must have given them some special practice. (laughs) And each day, one more of these good yogis were writing in notebooks, and I was feeling worse and worse about myself. No, he didn't ask me to do that, and I must be doing really badly. And then time goes on, and all the people I thought were really not such good yogis, you know, who looked like they were spacing out a lot and just wandering around, they started writing in notebooks. So then I thought, well, I must be such a good yogi that I don't have to do that. And my mind was just going back and forth and back and forth. And actually, Upandita hadn't asked anybody to do anything. (laughs) People were just writing in them as a way of remembering their experience to report to him. It was such a striking example, and one of an infinite number, of just how we create these images of ourselves, of other people, and then live in that prison. Again, it's worth paying attention to that to see how we do that, how we construct this for ourselves. Concepts of place, of time, of ownership. There there are many that go on all evening with this. The last concept I want to mention, though, which is really at the heart of the spiritual dilemma, it's really at the heart of our practice, is the powerfully conditioned attachment we have to the concept of self, to the concept of I. This is the central knot that until we understand, until we open, until we see through, is the source of suffering in our lives. It's this concept or idea that we have that there is some unchanging entity somehow located inside to whom experience happens. Sort of the reference point for all experience. It's happening to me. This is the basic illusion. And yet it is pervasive in the world. I mean, you go up to anybody on the street. Do you believe in an I, in a self? Do you exist? (laughs) Everybody will say yes. So why is it? Why is this concept, which is the basic illusion of our lives, why is it that it's so strongly conditioned, that we believe it so deeply? 
This concept of self is conditioned and reconditioned and recreated by certain hallucinations of perception. The first of them is the hallucination or the illusion of continuity, which means things are changing so rapidly that we don't see the change. There are many examples of this. You go to the movies. You know, we go to the movie and we get absorbed in the story and all these characters are doing what they're doing. But what really is going on? It's separate frames of film. And light is shining through it. We don't see the frames of film. We don't see that process of change happening because it's happening too quickly. And so we're lost in the illusion. In fact, the whole point of going to the movies is to be lost in the illusion. Or if you had a, a, uh, a flaming torch, you know, and you whirled it around, what would you perceive? You would perceive a circle of fire, as if the circle existed as something. But actually, that's not what's there. That's an illusion of perception. What's really happening is something being whirled very quickly. So this is the first hallucination of our perception. The rapidity of change masks the understanding of change. And the second hallucination is that of the solidity of things. We look at things and they seem solid. We look at this and you know, this is a little bench. And this is a body. You know, you go outside and you look in the distance and it just looks like a mass, sort of a mass of color. You know, in this time of year, it's shades of gray and black and, and white. And then you look a little closer in and you begin to see, oh, it's not really just a mass of color, it's trees. And then you look a little closer and you see the individual trees and the individual branches and the bark and all the particles on the bark. And so you begin to see that what was taken to be some solid thing is not some solid thing at all. It's a composite of interrelated parts. When we look very closely at the nature of experience, we see that it's not solid at all, that there's no solidity anyplace. And we can experience that not only intellectually, experientially in our own bodies in the meditation practice. You know, we start out with the hallucination of perception. This, this is the body and this is who I am. Just as an example, when you're walking, in the beginning you might have the sense, yes, I'm walking, that's my foot, that's my leg. But foot and leg really is a concept. There's no sensation called foot and leg. You know, we have a certain perception of form and we call that leg. But as you're walking, as you're taking the step, what you feel is lightness and heaviness and pressure and vibration and pulsation. And you can come into the experience where the form completely disappears. There's no perception of form at all. There's a perception of changing energy sensations. We begin to break free of attachment to this idea of solidity. We begin to experience the body as really an energy field of sensation. It's a very different relationship then that we have to the body. We might very well say my leg. We probably wouldn't say my pressure. <laughs> leg is a concept. Pressure is what we're experiencing. So it makes a very big difference in how we're relating to experience when we drop from the level of concept to actually what's happening moment to moment. Because we free ourselves from these hallucinations. The hallucination of continuity, which comes from the rapidity of change, and the hallucination of solidity, which comes from not paying close attention.
it's out of these two illusions that the idea or concept of self is created. And then we live with that as our basis. We live in that world of illusion. Because we're not seeing that what we call I, what we call self, as a convenient designation, is really a constellation of changing elements. There's elements of the body, elements of the mind, in constant flux, in constant change. They form a certain pattern. They're in a certain relationship to one another. We recognize the pattern. We look in the mirror every morning. Yep, that's me. Because we're recognizing the pattern and creating a concept, but not in the actual experience. One of my favorite and oft-remarked illustrations of this, after the talk, if you like, and I think it's a clear night tonight, go outside, look up at the sky, and look at the Big Dipper, you know, the constellation. Is there really a Big Dipper up there? (laughs) There's no Big Dipper. Big Dipper is a concept. It's an idea which we have created. We put this name on that pattern of stars. And then in some fundamental way, I mean, we all know that there's no Big Dipper, and yet try going out there at night and not seeing the Big Dipper. (laughs) It's very difficult. We've been so conditioned to see it in a certain way. And what is the effect of that? There are two. There's a positive and a negative side to it. The positive side is that we can use the Big Dipper to find the North Star. So it's convenient. It really has, for those who want to know where the North Star is. (laughs) The downside is that attachment to that concept separates out those stars from the sense of the sky as a whole, with all the stars. We've created a separation, an artificial separation. We do exactly the same thing. Joseph is the same as Big Dipper. Joseph is a concept, as is the name of each one of you. It's a concept designating a constellation of changing elements changing physical, mental, emotional elements in a certain pattern. But we forget that. We get lost in the concept. We, we create this idea, yet yeah, there's really somebody, some being, some entity called Joseph. Is Joseph the thought that just happened? No. Is it the sound that was just heard? Is it the sensation that has arisen and passed away? No. It's just a convenient designation for this constellation. It's a concept. Joseph is a kid in a Halloween costume. It's just a Halloween costume. But we take it very seriously. We take it to be the reality. We miss what's really underneath. We miss the reality of what's actually there. Another example of how we do this. And it's so important to understand how this process is working in our lives because it has such consequences for how we live, for really whether we're living in freedom or in suffering. Now, when we see a rainbow... Rainbow is wonderful. You know, we see it and we feel this lightness and joy and happiness and it's beautiful. But what's interesting is that there's actually no such thing as a rainbow. A rainbow is not a thing. A rainbow is an appearance due to certain conditions. Conditions come together and there is the appearance of a rainbow. 
as anybody knows who ever tried to <laughs> grab hold of it. We need to see what's the appearance and what is the reality. We need to see that in our own lives. There's one activity of our minds which reinforces or reconditions not only the belief in self, but the felt sense of it. Because it's not only kind of an intellectual construct. If it did, it wouldn't have that much power. It is that, but there's also something that goes on which gives us the feeling of self, the feeling of I. And we have to understand what that process is. And that's the activity of mind which identifies with the various elements of changing experience. It's that process of identification with something. We can see it in many aspects. We can see it in terms of bodily sensations. As you've probably noticed, we take them very personally. The sensations are simply arising and are being known. That's all. But we don't stop with it there. We identify with those sensations and we overlay many concepts on top of them. So there may be a sensation of pressure or tightness or heat or whatever it is. And if we're simply mindful on that level, there's no problem. It's just mindfulness of pressure, mindfulness of heat. But what happens is we identify with it and then create the concept knee. And then add to that my knee. And out of this um, building of concepts, we then get into usually an adversarial relationship. My knee, and it hurts, and I don't like it. And we build and build and build. And it's all happening in our minds. It's not the sensation itself. We go from pressure to knee to my knee to I'll never walk again. <laughs> Look to see in your practice what your mind does after the initial recognition and awareness of the sensation. Just see what it builds and notice the difference between those mental constructs and the sense of I that they engender and the bare awareness of the sensation itself. It is a world of difference. Not only do we identify and personalize the sensations that are felt, we identify strongly with the thoughts that arise in the mind. Just between one step and the next, how many mind worlds can you create? It's amazing. You can create all of New York City between two steps. You know, in the Buddhist teaching, in the Buddhist cosmology, uh, it talks of different realms of existence. And there are the lower realms, and the animal realm, and human realm, and then the celestial and Brahma realms. And it's actually talked about places you know, where people are reborn. But really, it can be all experienced when we pay attention to the worlds we create in our thoughts. Have you ever inhabited a hell realm? You know, a mind-created realm of tremendous suffering where you're tormented. Have you created a realm, a heavenly realm of love and compassion? All of that is created by our minds. We can see that, we can pay attention to that. 
Notice what happens. We're sitting, we're going along. Thoughts arise. We get lost in the thought. And then notice the quality of the moment when you awaken from being lost in the thought. Just really notice the difference because I think you will experience in that moment of transition the sense of going from a place of constriction, of contraction, of when we're identified or lost in this world that we've created, in that very moment of remembering, oh yes, just a thought, it's like there's that sigh of relief. It's really a moment of awakening. That is a moment of freedom for you. But we pass over it. We don't pay attention to it. We miss the significance of it. Now, it's somewhat similar to the experience you might have when you go to the movies, you know, when you're totally lost and involved in the story and the drama. You know, and then when you come out of the theater, that it's like a that reality shift that takes place. It's like, Oh yeah, I'm back here. And it is a moment of expansiveness. It's a moment of awakening of a kind. We need to practice paying attention to thoughts as they arise in the mind because they are very subtle and very slippery. You know, we're with the breath or we're with sensations and it's like they just slip in. And before we know it, we're gone. We're lost in them. So at first, with our effort and practice, we're not aware of thoughts till after they're already over. It's like we're back on the breath and then we remember, oh yeah, thinking. But as we go on, you begin to be aware of thoughts in the middle of them. And when the mind is very clear, when the mindfulness is quite strong, just as the thought arises. You can see it as it arises. To understand the nature of thought and to see that when we are mindful of them, you know, there's a, there's a nice Tibetan phrase, like, in the awareness of thoughts, they self-liberate. And there's just that sense. In the moment of being aware of a thought, it's gone. It self-liberates. No longer is imprisoning us. We begin to see very clearly that thoughts don't belong to anybody. They're arising out of conditions. That's all. They're not rooted. In one text it says, The thoughts that wander through your mind have no roots, no home. But what we do through this process of identification, it's like we root the thoughts. So can you imagine looking up at the sky and seeing these roots coming down from all the clouds, rooting them to the ground? When we see them for what they are, we understand they have no roots, no home. They're really empty phenomena. And they no longer have the power to dominate, to so dominate our lives. Just as an experiment to help you see the empty nature of thought, the non-personal nature of thought, you might do a little experiment. As you said, and notice thoughts arising in the mind, just imagine that they're coming from the person next to you. I mean, we don't know where they come from. (laughs) Do you know where your thoughts come from? They might as well come from the person next to you. And I think if you see them in that way, you'll have a more spacious relationship to them. Don't underestimate the power of thoughts when we're not mindful of them because they actually drive our lives. And what's so amazing about this whole process 
is that as soon as we're mindful of them, this process which has been so powerful in our lives is seen to be nothing. They just evaporate. And it gives us a tremendous sense of freedom. Okay, so we identify personalized sensations in the body. We identify a lot. We get lost a lot in thoughts. We also identify very strongly, even perhaps more strongly than thoughts, with emotions. You know, the different emotions that arise in our experience, different mental states. Anger arises, I'm angry. Happiness arises, I'm happy. Sadness arises, I'm sad. We take them, we claim them as being self, as being I. And we don't even stop there. We're not satisfied with that. We build a further superstructure. Not only am I angry or I'm sad, we go further and think I'm an angry person or I'm a fearful person. We solidify this whole sense of personality and self in our identification with these emotions. It's as if we build a superstructure of self just in a moment of certain conditions coming together. Conditions are there, anger arises, sadness arises, happiness arises. When there's awareness, there's no I, there's no self to be found. It's anger which is angering. It's love which loves. At one point in my practice, I was going through a tremendous amount of fear. Just lots of fear was arising. And in one particular retreat, it was so intense, it felt so primal. There was fear about going from sitting position to standing. I mean, it was amazing. I've never, I've never had that kind of experience before. It was so strong, and I was getting pretty identified with it. The fear taught me a lot. The first thing it taught me was that in order to really become mindful and aware of emotions, we need to accept them. Because as long as we're pushing them away, or resisting, or have aversion, or watching in order for them to leave, that is strengthening them. It was in dealing with the fear that I discovered my mantra, it's okay. Because I came to a place, I had been with the fear for several days, quite intensely, and finally there was this moment of surrender in the mind, and I thought, okay, let this fear be here for the rest of my life. It's okay. And it was amazing, in that moment of acceptance, of genuine acceptance, not tolerating it, it's okay. In that moment, the whole thing opened up. So we need to learn to see how we get identified with different emotions. Sharon helped me a lot with this one because it kept recurring. You know, the fear kept coming back. And I was getting lost in the story of my being a fearful person and I need to spend 20 years in therapy and untie all the knots. And it was really quite depressing. <laughs> And then we were teaching in Texas, and I remember we were just going for a walk after lunch, and I was going on and on about my fear, and, and she just turned to me, and she looked at me, and she said, it's only a mind state. And somehow, in that moment, my mind was ready to hear it. Oh, yeah, it's only a mind state. It was something I had said to people 10,000 times. <laughs> But sometimes, just at the right moment, you know, it's said, oh yeah, it's just a mind state. We don't have to buy into it, identify with it, build this whole sense of self in it. 
That's the delusion of mind. We can also be identified with emotions sort of in a negative way, not only by being lost in them, sort of consciously identified, although we recognize them, we can also be subtly identified when we're denying the emotions. You know, it's as if each one of us has this shadow side of certain aspects of our experience which we don't accept, which we don't like, which we don't open to, that somehow these feelings or these states are unacceptable. And for each one of us, it may be something different. Maybe it's a feeling of unworthiness or loneliness or rage or whatever. It's a state that we're not willing to be with. That's simply the reverse, the reverse kind of identification. And what happens is that we begin to live our lives very defensively. It's as if we're living our lives protecting ourselves from ever having to feel that emotion. How much of what we do in our life is so that we don't feel bored? Whether we don't feel lonely? Probably a lot. And those those are relatively simple emotions. It's actually much easier to feel bored. Okay, let me be bored. (laughs) Let me feel what loneliness is. It's only a mind state. It's only emotion. It arises, it's there for a while, it goes. It doesn't have to drive our lives. But to have the freedom of it, we need to see it. We need to be willing to open to it. We need to be willing to feel it and not get lost in this identification. Please notice, you know, and and the retreat is really, the retreat is a gift to yourself. You know, it's this time where your only job is to pay attention. It's a tremendous luxury in this world. That's the whole purpose of being here. So notice what happens as you go through the day and different emotions arise, different mind state arises. Notice the difference between when you're identified with them, when you're taking them to be self, the difference between that and when there's simply open awareness of them, anger, sadness, happiness, whatever it is. It's not that we're not feeling them. We're feeling them totally. We're simply not adding that extra process of identification. I think that what you will notice is that when we identify with these states as they come, It's as if we contract into the prison of self. And we can feel, we can feel that sense of contraction. And in the moment of awareness, we're out of the prison. Then there's simply the emotion. We personalize and identify with the sensations in the body. We identify with the thoughts that arise in the mind, with different emotions. We can also identify with consciousness, with the knowing. You know, and what that does is create a sense of self in the observer or the witness. We may be noticing all these phenomena and not identifying, but in this very subtle way, identifying with the one who's watching, the one who's observing. That's, again, a subtle constriction. With interest, with really a keen interest and attention, it's possible to discover the nature of consciousness itself. And for me, this is one of the most mysterious and illuminating aspects of the practice. What actually is awareness?
it's happening all the time. It's sort of this continual everyday mystery, and yet very rarely do we really look to examine, okay, what is going on? You know, if there were a corpse here, and we sort of lifted its arm, sort of, if we could, a fresh corpse, you know, <laughs> the body would be there, the movement would be there. There would be no awareness, I think. When we lift our arms, same body, same movement, but there's something else going on, and there's knowing of that movement. What is that? What is it that is knowing? What is it that's aware? When we look, we can't see anything. Awareness, consciousness, is not a thing. So we can't point to it and say, yeah, there, there it is. It's invisible. It's invisible, it's clear, it's lucid, it's empty. Just as an analogy, and don't solidify the analogy too much, but it may give you a, just point in a direction, just as a mirror reflects what comes in front of it, and that's the nature of the mirror, to reflect, and it does it spontaneously, in the moment, the nature of the mind is to know. The nature of the mind is to know. There's nothing we have to do to create awareness. When you hear a sound, we'll show and tell. Are you doing anything to be aware of that? No. The sound appears and the mind knows it. Where is the mind? We can't find it. And yet it's happening moment after moment. Pay attention to this. Don't fixate on it. Like sometimes people just start thinking about it a lot. And, you know, where is it and how can I find it? And <laughs> that is not helpful. <laughs> However, just in the very simple aspects of the practice, with each breath. There's the sensation of the breath, and it is known. There's a movement, and it is known. There's awareness of it. Pay attention to the fact that these two things are happening. There's the movement and the awareness of it. For myself, this is an incredible mystery. I can, it's just amazing to me that it continues to happen. We need to see this, we need to understand it. First, just for the, for the joy of the mystery, and secondly, so that we don't identify with it. So that we don't create the self because the awareness is unexamined and we're identifying with it and creating the sense of watcher or observer. It's just a process. Sound arises and it is known. Movement arises and it is known. One phrase which describes it, and again, it's all just metaphors pointing to something, spoke of the mind as the cognizing power of emptiness. The cognizing power of emptiness. And that sort of captures the flavor. So the question is, given the proclivity and the conditioning we have to identify with all of these elements of experience, sensations, thoughts, emotions, consciousness itself, how can we decondition this? How can we decondition this process? So we actually remain in freedom. It's really very simple and it's what we are practicing. Through a sustained and a careful interest, we simply notice the changing nature of all phenomena. We see everything arising and passing. And as our perception becomes more refined, we see that things are changing so quickly they don't last long enough to be self. 
in the moment of noticing a thought, where is it? It's gone. In the moment of noticing the particles of sensation, it's gone. What we are is this changing process of different elements of mind and body. There's no one behind it to whom it is happening. The notion of self, the notion of I, the notion of Joseph is a concept. We need to drop into the level of our actual experience, come out of that cave in the world of shadows into the sunlight, into freedom, into understanding. I'd like to close with a quotation and a teaching from one of the great Tibetan meditation masters who died several years ago. His name is Kala Rinpoche. Really expresses all of this very succinctly. He said that we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality and we are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in the world of concepts. There is a reality, and we are that reality. All the elements of our experience. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. So let's sit for a few minutes and simply rest very simply in the natural awareness of what it is that arises moment after moment. The breath, a sound, a sensation, a thought. And see if it's possible to be with all of these experiences without the overlay of identification. Being with things just as they are. There's a short Chinese poem by Li Po. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.